folks, and welcome to this week's episode of the Legal Beagle Podcast. This week, we are joined by a very, very important person, the president of the Arizona Association for Justice, Mr. John Osteen. Unfortunately, we had a technical mishap for the first half of this podcast. So we're going to jump right in to kind of the middle of the podcast so you can hear from John directly as I ask him various questions about his practice in personal injury law, his acting role as president of the Arizona Association for Justice, and his thoughts on the future of personal injury practices for all attorneys. So without further ado, John Osteen. Well, this is a lesson that every trial lawyer knows is that technology sometimes will fail you and you always have to be prepared with a backup. So um, when we left off, we were talking about the importance of uh, really getting to know our clients and uh, embedding ourselves in their lives. And the case that I mentioned before with the young boy who was paralyzed and sustained a brain injury uh, was a case that's really emblematic of how important that is. I spent so much time with that family that I, I became part of their, you know, their family issues. And when there were things going on, um, I was brought in to try to help solve them and mediate them. And as a result of that, I really understood the intricacies of what they were going through and the challenges that they were facing as, uh, you know, a number of family members are working together to try to support this boy who needed uh, just a ton of support. And it made me a better attorney when it came time to mediate the case and uh, to sit down with the lawyers on the other side because I was able to effectively communicate the story of what they were going through. And I couldn't have prepared myself for that uh, just by reading his medical records and learning about what his uh, you know, particular issues were on a particular doctor's visit. Uh, I only would have been able to know that uh, had I really been part of the family and had been living through the same things that they were going through. And obviously every case, it's not feasible to, you know, to have that level of involvement. Um, but our clients all have stories. And the only way we're going to be able to help them tell those stories is by getting to know them uh, and understanding what they've gone through and frankly, to have empathy for what they're going through. So... I imagine over your 15 year career as an attorney, you've made some mistakes. Tell me about one mistake that you just learned a, a lot from, because I think it's nice to talk about all of our wins and our successes. And I want people that watch this or listen to this to hear that, look, we're not perfect and there are mistakes made. Tell me about one that, that you have learned a great deal from. Well, that's an interesting question. And I'm not sure I would necessarily uh, characterize this as a mistake, but in this practice, trial opportunities are few and far in between. You know, trial attorney who averages one trial a year has a very active trial practice. 
So every time we're in the courtroom, it feels like we're shaking off some rust. Um, I can tell you voir dire may be one of the most important parts of trial, uh, but it's always a point where I'm most terrified because I'm in front of a bunch of people who don't know me and don't trust me. And I probably haven't been in a courtroom in a year uh, in front of a jury. Um, so it's always, uh, it's always a little unsettling to get started. My wife is also an attorney and she went straight to the prosecutor's office out of law school. Uh, as a result of that, she tried more cases in two years than I will ever try in my career. Um, she's literally tried hundreds of cases, uh, dozens of jury trials. And I think that that experience is invaluable, um, particularly for law students who are aiming to be injury attorneys. They shouldn't overlook a job that takes them outside of this practice area for a period of time. Uh, consider working as a prosecutor or a public defender because uh, those trial experiences will be so valuable. I mean, in this practice, we're really judged on how we do in trial um, and not just on an individual basis in terms of a particular client who we want to have a successful result for, uh, but our reputations and our, you know, professional accomplishments are built on what we do at trial. And if we don't, you know, we don't have a lot of opportunities to get those trial experiences. So uh, if I had an opportunity to do it all over, I think I would, you know, I'd look really hard at uh, having started in an area where I could get that trial practice right off the bat. Sage words. John, do you love to win or hate to fail more? I remember reading Andre Agassi's autobiography, Open, and if you haven't read it, I'd highly recommend it. But one thing that really struck out to me in that book was his statement that the losses stung far worse than the joy that he experienced from wins. And I imagine that that feeling is shared among a lot of successful athletes, um, among a lot of successful professionals. But later in his career, Andre Agassi found a purpose to playing tennis. And for him, that purpose was uh, using the financial resources that he attained through the game to support underprivileged children. And he opened up an educational academy uh, where he took people who uh, almost entirely came from families that had never put somebody into college. And I think one of the tremendous accomplishments was that the first graduating class of that academy, I think it was 99% of them went on to college. Uh, so, I mean, in this profession, the losses sting and we never want to fail. Uh, for us, there will always be, you know, the next case. You know, if we, if we don't do well, we, you know, we dust ourselves off and we, we move on to the next file. Uh, but for our clients, uh, it's their one and only case, and it's their only opportunity to right a wrong. Uh, so when we're not successful, I think we really have to learn from our failures. Did we make an error in case selection? Um, did facts come out during the course of discovery that really torpedoed the case? Uh, did we retain an expert who maybe wasn't the best option? Uh, in this field, every case is a learning opportunity. 
but as Agassi did toward the end of his career, I've learned to enjoy the wins, uh, not just for myself, but for the people that I'm helping. Other than Agassi's book, what other books would you recommend that every trial attorney read? My favorite book is Polarizing the Case. And I read that book before every trial. Um, and I won't uh, rehash the entire book because I think there's so many valuable lessons to learn as trial lawyers. Uh, but a lot of my strategy in trial is premised on uh, the suggestions that they make in that book. And that there's really a, um, you know, there are really two options in every case, two things for, you know, the jury to consider. Uh, one is that the plaintiff is a liar. And if the plaintiff is a liar, they should send him out with nothing because our legal system isn't here to reward liars. Uh, if the person is not a liar, then that person is legitimately injured. And everything that the defense attorney has done to malign the character of that, uh, that plaintiff is shameful. And the jury should appropriately punish the defendants for doing that. So um, I, I really think that polarizing the case is a must read for anybody in this practice area. Who do you admire in this profession? You can't say your dad because your dad has done amazing work in our profession and, and, and a lot of good for all of us, but let's keep him out. Who else do you admire in our profession? Besides you? <laughs> Besides me. Yes. Um, I mean, if I had to, you know, throw out a name or two, uh, Jeff Trachtenberg would be probably at the top of my list. Um, I mean, he has uh, built a tremendously successful practice, uh, which in and of itself is challenging. Uh, but I look at what he has done generally for the community uh, and, and not just the trial lawyers community, uh, but just Arizonans in general. And uh, it's pretty inspiring what he has done to make this a better place. Uh, whether it be his work, um, and it was a hard-fought battle to raise the minimum limits of liability insurance in Arizona. And, you know, many of your listeners will probably be aware that the minimum limits have been $15,000 for some time. What they may not know is that those limits have been uh, $15,000 per person since 1972. And $15,000 bought you a lot more medical care in 1972 than it buys in 2020. Uh, but as a result of his efforts uh, lobbying the legislature, um, I mean, he practically lived there for a couple years. Um, Governor Ducey uh, last year signed a bill that raised the minimum limits of insurance. And it's going to help a lot of people who are, you know, injured in motor vehicle crashes uh, because you can go to the hospital and you can be in an emergency room for four hours and you easily could have a fifteen or $20,000 bill from that medical treatment. Um, so I, I look at what he's been able to accomplish personally and uh, his accomplishments for the greater good of this community. And it's pretty inspiring. What do you tell people or maybe a better way to ask that is how do you respond to people when they call 
injury attorneys, ambulance chasers? I just laugh. Um, you know, I think people are quick to criticize attorneys until they need one. Um, I've yet to have a client tell me that I'm an ambulance chaser, uh, even though I suspect that, uh, you know, in 15 years, I've uh, represented a lot of people with a lot of different opinions, politically, socially, and uh, probably didn't have a particular, you know, particular like for attorneys. I represented a, uh, a couple in a bad faith claim and uh, they were, you know, more sophisticated clients and that they owned a business that was a very successful business. And uh, the husband told me right off the bat, I don't like lawyers um, and I don't trust you. Um, and it's going to take a lot, you know, for you to earn my trust. And that case, um, we litigated it for close to two years, took 20 some depositions. Um, by the, the end of the case, uh, not only had I, you know, flipped their opinions on lawyers, but uh, they invited me out to dinner afterwards. And um, I was actually uh, out with my son uh, about a week ago. And um, we were just, uh, we were throwing uh, football out on uh, the first hole of the Biltmore golf course. We were over my in-laws place and uh, went out to enjoy the outdoors. And I saw them walking up and, uh, you know, I said hello and, it, you know, they, it was like, you know, old friends. And so uh, you have those people who uh, are uh, sort of critical. They, they think that maybe our motives aren't in the right place. Uh, but if, if you're doing good work and, you know, you're really getting to understand what your client's needs are, um, you're going to earn their trust and you're going to change their opinions of lawyers. For sure. I started off this podcast uh, introducing you as the current president of the Arizona Association for Justice. Can you tell me a little bit more about that organization, their mission, and your ascension to the role of president? Well, yeah, I'll start in reverse order uh, because I wouldn't be the president this year uh, had the previous vice president, uh, Krista Carmen, not been appointed to the bench in Yavapai County. So, um, I'm, I'm a little bitter about that because I get to go through uh, this presidency in the middle of a global pandemic and in an election year. So, um, you know, I'm the guy people are, you know, they're ducking when I call them because they know I'm probably asking them for money. Uh, I've done that to you. And yes. uh, I, I do that to a lot of trial lawyers uh, because, you know, what, what this organization can accomplish uh, requires a commitment from all of us. And, you know, what we're out to do is, is preserve the right to a jury trial and ensure that people are, that are harmed by, you know, wrongdoing of corporations, governments, uh, have a civil justice system that is prepared and equipped to meet their needs. Um, one of the things that, that I really appreciate about the civil justice system is it's the one area where, you know, a person who doesn't have resources and, you know, doesn't have an education, um, isn't well off, uh, can stand toe to toe with the biggest of corporations. And that doesn't happen in our other branches of government. Um, 
you know, if you look as we're going through a presidential campaign, the amount of money that is being spent to influence our opinions on, uh, on various issues, uh, to influence our opinions on political candidates is unprecedented. And this is the one area where those corporations can't flood a ton of money into the system and improperly influence the outcome of cases. Because at the end of the day in Arizona, uh, we're gonna be judged by eight jurors in our civil justice system. And I think that's one of the things that's really scary for corporations is that they don't have the control. They can't buy off a politician. They can't buy off a judge. They can't buy off the jury. Uh, so our organization, uh, the Arizona Association for Justice, is really here to make sure that uh, corporations don't uh, try to dilute the right to a jury trial, uh, whether it be um, you know, forcing people into forced arbitration clauses or um, you know, taking away the right to you know, jury trial in favor of a bench trial or placing caps on damages. We, we put a lot of trust in our, in our jurors and this organization's here to make sure that organizations through politicians don't mess with that system. Do you believe in the, the good of a jury? And what I mean by that is there are critics who say that juries are maybe not the best triers of fact for personal injury cases. There are critics who say that, uh, you know, juries don't know how to, or don't comprehend the injuries that people have suffered. There are critics that say that uh, it's too risky, that you can get results that are just all over the map. Do you believe in the good of a jury? Yeah, I think uh, the juries can be a little more predictable than we give them credit for. And my experience with jurors is that they want to do the right thing. And we can all look to cases where we disagree with the jury. And maybe we justifiably disagree with the jury, or maybe we've read a biased story about the trial and we think, how could that jury have possibly reached that decision? Uh, but the reality is most jurors want to do the right thing. And this is the best system in the world in terms of uh, seeking you know, redress for wrongdoings. So um, I have a lot of confidence in the juror system, and I would much rather you know, put my faith in eight jurors than one judge, because you know, what you have is a greater diversity of opinion. Um, if this legal system was decided entirely by attorneys, you know, attorneys who represent the litigants, attorneys who have been appointed as judges uh, to try matters. Um, we're not far away from the other branches of government that we, uh, we don't always have confidence in. You talked earlier about some advice you may give a young attorney that wants to get into personal injury work. What are some mistakes, just a couple, that you see attorneys that have been practicing for a while either still making or common mistakes that you see occurring in this profession that you'd, you'd love to see stop? I think the biggest mistake that young attorneys will make from time to time is being somebody 
who they're not. We go to a lot of seminars that address trial skills. Uh, we watch a lot of videos uh, from trial. We read a lot of books about trial. And the reality is, is, you know, I'm not Jerry Spence, you know, he might be the greatest trial lawyer in the world. Uh, but if I try to be Jerry Spence, I'm probably going to fail miserably at it. So my goal has always been to attend those seminars to see what other attorneys are doing, uh, to read the books, uh, to watch videos, and come up with my own game plan for who I am as a trial lawyer and what I think will work for me. Uh, because if I'm trying to be somebody I'm not, it's going to come off as forced. So when I go into trial, um, I just want to be myself. In, in terms of, you know, preparing, you know, for, you know, for that, you know, the ultimate end game, going to trial, I think the most important thing is practice. It's, it's not the seminars. It's not reading the books. It's practice. Um, and whether you get that practice because you, you start off in the criminal field and you're doing a bunch of bench trials, or you get your practice through compulsory arbitration cases, I, I think it's important to really hone your skills and understand what your personality is and embrace that when you go to trial. When you ask a jury for a big verdict, you're asking them for multiple millions of dollars. Is that an awkward conversation for you? Or, and if it's not, maybe a, a follow-up to that would be, how have you made it less awkward? So that people who normally don't talk about money are comfortable talking about money as it relates to your client's injuries. I think anytime you're asking somebody for money, it's an awkward situation. Um, whether you're, you know, you're young and you're asking your parents for some help, or uh, you're the president of the trial lawyers association, you're asking Jonathan Negrete for help. Um, you're in front of a jury and you're asking for millions. It's an awkward situation. Um, you have to be comfortable at it though, because if you're nervous when you're asking for that money, uh, a jury is going to recognize that and they're going to attribute, um, they're going to attribute things to your nervousness that may not be legitimate. Oh, he's asking for too much money because he's nervous. So uh, it is something that ultimately you have to be comfortable with. Um, I mean, for, for lawyers who are listening to this podcast, I really rely on the damages instruction and try to use that as the basis of why I'm asking for that money. And that everything that we have shown you during the course of the trial is to show you the losses. It's not for sympathy, but it's for this point here where you're being asked to put money on those losses. And if you look at those jury instructions, I mean, we all, we all think of an injury claim as being, you know, medical expenses plus lost income plus some compensation for pain and suffering. And the problem that some lawyers uh, get into, and I think is repeated by some jurors, is that they think of those damages in terms of some multiple. Um, you know, okay, well, what are the medical expenses? We're going to multiply it by three, and those are the damages. And I don't think that that's a you know fair or proper way to assess damages. So I think when you explain it to a jury, 
that we're not here you know, just for medical expenses, uh, that it's a lot more than pain and suffering. And you use the jury instruction to, uh, to get that point through, I think it's a lot more effective when you're now turning around and asking that person for you know, millions of dollars. If you look at the jury instruction, uh, the first element of damages isn't medical expenses, it's the nature, extent, and duration of the injury. Uh, the second element isn't medical expenses. You know, it's pain, suffering, and anxiety experienced and reasonably probable to be experienced in the future as a result of the injury. You don't get to medical expenses until the third element of the jury instruction. So um, I always like to instill in clients that the medical expenses aren't why we're here. You know, that's not the biggest loss in this case. And it makes sense if, you know, you've got a friend or a family member who's involved in a crash. Um, the first thing you ask them isn't, oh my gosh, you know, what was the doctor's bill from your hospital visit? You know, it's, how are you doing? You know, what, you know, what's in store for you? What are the doctors telling you about your injuries? What is your prognosis? Gosh, do you need any help around the house? Can I, you know, can I help you with dinner? Can I, you know, pick up the kids from school? What can I do to help? And it's really those, you know, those human elements of the damages that I think are most critical. And if you've done a good job in trial explaining to the jury what those losses are, then it's a whole lot easier to ask them to put a meaningful number on those damages. How do you respond to the person who says in, in a case where an injury has resolved, meaning you don't have lifelong care needed. And the, the criticism is, look, money's not going to make it any better. It was a mistake. It was an accident. It happened, but money's not going to fix it. How do you respond to that? Boy, it's a good thing the jurors can't ask me questions in Arizona. They can only ask questions of the witnesses. Um, I think it's important to recognize that most losses uh, as a result of injuries are not permanent. As humans, we are resilient people. And uh, we, we want to get back on the horse. We want to get back to work. Uh, we want to get back to the activities that we enjoy. And so we work hard through, uh, through recovery, following our doctor's advice to get to a position where we're much better off. And I think when jurors see that, and they see the determination of somebody who, you know, they don't want to be uh, somebody who has chronic, you know, back pain. And they're going to do everything in their power to recover. And they're not going to use that as an excuse not to go to work. Um, I think the case sort of sells itself at that point. And a juror can look at it and say, man, you know, thankfully this, you know, this person is not, you know, critically injured and they're able to go about their life. But gosh, for that period of time, you know, Jim was working, you know, 12 hours a day and uh, doing two hours of physical therapy five days a week so he could get to that point. And as a result of that, he sacrificed a lot. And they can look at that situation and say, I'm glad it's not a permanent injury, but it's something that was meaningful in Jim's life. And we need to recognize that. I have a feeling Jim is a real person. I just, that's just a guess. I don't know. I could be wrong. I've got a feeling you know, Jim. <laughs> 
Finish this sentence for me, John. The biggest challenge facing personal injury attorneys today is. We're not supposed to criticize judges. So it, uh, it gives me a little bit of heartburn to, to answer this question. But I think one of the, the struggles that we're going to face moving forward um, is a recent change to our ethical rules that will allow non-lawyers to own law firms. And the idea was sold to the public as being necessary to uh, expand, um, expand the availability of resources to underprivileged or underserved uh, populations in Arizona. Uh, which I simply don't agree that allowing non-lawyers to own law firms is what's going to solve that. Uh, the reality is that the, uh, the person who uh, lives in Kingman and uh, is living in, in a bad situation and has a potential claim against their landlord, um, those aren't the cases where hedge funds, you know, corporations want to jump in and provide assistance to. Um, there are just a, a few areas of law where I think uh, hedge funds, corporations are going to uh, become, you know, become prevalent in this legal community and personal injury practice is one of them. So uh, this practice, one of the things that's always impressed me about it is that we're not competitors, you know, Jonathan, you and I, we, we both run plaintiff's personal injury practices. We both want to, you know, sign up the big case and, and help the deserving person. And, uh, you know, a case that your firm signs up is, is somebody who I won't be helping. Uh, somebody who my, my firm signs up is somebody you won't be helping. Um, although I say that with a caveat, because when I need help, uh, when I've got questions, uh, whether it be about an expert, about a defense attorney, about a particular legal issue in a case, I know that I can pick up the phone and I can get your help and your advice. Um, in this practice, uh, none of us see each other as competitors because we're all serving the same common good. And as a result of that, there's a certain camaraderie that uh, we're all in this together and we're all going to help one another. And my concern is that when you uh, turn over this practice to hedge funds and to large corporations, you're not going to have that type of camaraderie any longer. Uh, you're going to have corporations who are there to turn a profit and uh, to, uh, you know, to expend the fewest resources and, you know, least amount of work necessary to get a quick result for a client instead of a an outcome that makes sense for that client so um, I guess my biggest concern going forward is how uh, how that's going to affect the personal injury practice and Arizona is the only state that is allowing this to happen so you know we're a petri dish of sorts and I see a lot of bad that can come out of this and I don't see any good Speaking of petri dishes, there's a pilot program in Florida right now. They've actually completed their second jury trial doing the entire thing remotely. I actually watched it because I was fascinated by this idea. 
What are your thoughts on the evolution of, of practice and, and trials and whether or not that's a good idea or a bad idea? So I think in the short term, it's probably a good idea uh, because in this practice, if you don't have a trial date, if you don't have that threat of getting in front of a jury, you don't have a lot of leverage to uh, affect a resolution and to settle a case short of trial. Uh, so my concern when this pandemic hit was that cases were going to languish, that we weren't going to be able to impanel juries, uh, that uh, perhaps the legal industry wasn't going to respond to this crisis with um, technology that would allow us to, to manage as best we could. Um, so I think that these, these trials have been very positive because they allow people who you know, have very serious issues and you know, need their day in court uh, to be able to go on with their lives. It gives them an avenue to, to have that day in court. Um, Long-term, I mean, when we get past this pandemic, I'm not gonna be clamoring for Zoom jury trials because I think that it's gonna be a lot harder. Um, I've gotta give a lot of credit to those attorneys who have gone through a Zoom trial because uh, it, it's hard enough to uh, persuade a jury that your cause is right. Um, but when you're adding all of the technological challenges of doing it all by Zoom and having, you know, eight to 10 jurors log in and, you know, coordinating witnesses through technology that is really new is, is a challenge. Um, and I hope we get back to trial because I think it's a lot easier for us as attorneys to connect with a jury and easier for our clients to connect with a jury, which is probably more important. Well, I had the opportunity to do uh, a compulsory arbitration completely virtual or I guess remotely. And there were some challenges, but the technology worked. We were able to take witnesses. Uh, everyone was respectful of the arbitrator. I was fascinated by the process. And for cases like that, that maybe are subject to compulsory ARB, I like the the idea of using that technology to get those cases done maybe quicker, maybe with less headache and less cost for either party. I thought it was fascinating. I, I, the trial, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I, if they offered it here, I would certainly sign up to do it. Cause I think technology is, is amazing. And I think there are challenges. Look, we have challenges with this podcast and some of the, the technology that we're using, but I think it's interesting to see the practice evolve and and to see what comes next and i'm excited to see some of those things and certainly want to be an early adopter of those things because i think uh, i think if you're not you're still playing in a in a, an old ball field and you're not willing to to upgrade to the new ball field so I, I don't know what that means for us and whether we'll see this thing roll out nationwide but it's certainly an interesting idea and i i i welcome the the folks that are kind of behind this and and pushing these ideas of using technologies John, before I let you go, on a lighter note, the Pac-12 delayed the start of their football season. Uh, they're set to kick off in a couple weeks. Where do you see your Sun Devils finishing? Give me a prediction on a record and whether or not they're going to win the South in the Pac-12. Man, I'd love to see 7-0. and uh, I think 5-2 five five is probably the most likely scenario, but um, – 
this is a good team. Uh, it'll be interesting to see, though, how uh, what's been a very unusual offseason uh, translates into on-field performance. Because if you look at the SEC, I think there have been a lot of surprises there. Uh, not a lot of defense being played, which normally we would associate the SEC with its strong defenses. Uh, but we're going to have a tough test uh, right off the bat, starting off with USC. And if we can beat USC in game one, then I'm going to up my projection to uh, six and one or seven and zero. Oh. Um, but one thing I am confident of is that we're going to finish a lot better than U of A, who I'm sure was <laughs> disappointed when they learned that the Pac-12 would be playing a 2020 season after all. I love it. I love it. I tell people I live on uh, Pasadena. That's the Pasadena Avenue. And any U of A fan that I know or meet, I always, if they're going to come to the house, I always give them very specific instructions and directions on how to get here because U of A has never been to the Rose Bowl. They don't know what Pasadena looks like. So even here in Arizona, I can, I, I can imagine them getting lost. So I'm very careful on how to get them here because I, it's very foreign. It's foreign territory for them. John, thank you so much for being on this week's podcast. I appreciate your time. I appreciate your insights. I appreciate the work that you're doing as the president of AAJ and just uh, you're an overall good human being and you're, you are certainly someone I admire in this profession. So it was very exciting for me to get you on this podcast. Thank you again. I appreciate the time. You're too kind, Jonathan. Thanks.